Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. How do you catch a dodgy company that seems to be making actual cold hard cash? Normally, that's the stuff they can't fudge, right? This interview features Johnny Shapiro. Johnny's episode comes in at number 13 of the Countdown series on the Australian Investors Podcast, as we count down the 15 most influential episodes on the Australian Investors Podcast series ever. Johnny is a journalist at the Australian Financial Review, where he still works today. We recorded this episode in 2018, long before Johnny would go on to write his own book, Buy Now, Pay Later, The Story of Afterpay, in 2021. Johnny is extremely well known for his attention to detail and work ethic. Of the many stories that he has broken over the years, in this podcast in particular, we talked about the unraveling of the Big Unlimited, ASX BIG story. Johnny won the Wakely Award for this coverage. We talked about Johnny's backstory, including one of his grandparents being a freedom fighter and the other one being a stockbroker. We talk about Apple's three co-founders, when many people think there's only two, and how the story unraveled at Big Un. There's so much to learn from this episode, even if some of the concepts are a bit dated and the topics, you might have to scratch your brain to remember. This was one of the most impactful episodes on me early in my journey, and it's so wonderful to have fantastic journalists just like Johnny appearing on our podcasts. At number 13 on the countdown, this is Johnny Shapiro of the Australian Financial Review. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Owen. It's nice to be being asked questions rather than asking questions for a change. <laughs> I um, I'd like to start off the this episode um, with a quick short story because I think it uh, it sits the scene really well for what we're about to discuss and, and put some context behind it. So there's a, a quote from one of the co-founders of Apple. What many of our listeners perhaps don't know is that there were three co-founders. There's Steve Wozniak, who was this technical brilliance, and then there was Steve Jobs, who 
obviously the creative, the marketing genius, etc. Then there's a guy named Ronald Wayne, and he was the third guy in the trio and a largely unknown commodity. Never he's, heard of him. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Never heard of him, right? So here's the crazy part. We all know Apple today. It sells iPhones. It's, you know, everything about it, is, it seems to be wonderful and going really well. Um, but it's been through some trying times since the 1970s. And in the early days, Ronald Wayne owned about 10% of Apple. Now, you could back that out and you could say it would potentially be worth billions of dollars today, if not maybe hundreds of millions, mm-hmm. right? Now, he sold his stake, his 10% stake for $800 12 days later. And on Facebook recently, he, um, he put on a post saying that it was character building. That was his quote, right? Um, so he sold the stake and he, and he said at the time, it's due to financial risks facing Apple. And there were some other concerns and he was pursuing other ventures at the time. And I'll quote directly. He said, if I had known it would make 300 people millionaires in only four years, I would have stayed those four years. Now, Ian Castle from the Micro Cap Club summed it up very well. And he said, Wayne made the best decision he could given the information he had available at the time. Now, the key focus of this podcast is that information, how we get it, who provides it, and how you go about it. And that's why I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Johnny, it's, it's a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm actually quite excited to talk about the role of journalism in markets and in finance. I think it's maybe some people maybe don't understand uh, how it works and I'd, I'd be happy to share as many insights as I can. Yeah, great. I'm sure our, our listeners will, will, will really enjoy this episode. So some of the things we're going to do is we're going to talk about the difference between fact and fairy tales. Um, but let's start where we normally start. And um, can you tell us about your time growing up, where you were living? Did you always want to be in finance? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, if the accent probably gives it away, but I'm born in South Africa. Mm. Um, I guess um, I always consider myself a function of my grandparents. Um my grand, my grandparents on my mother's side were a anti-apartheid activist. They were pretty mm. fierce and ferocious, and they mm. made a lot of sacrifices. My grandmother was in jail for a long time. Oh, wow. It was, um, and we were, we were very proud of them uh, to this day um, about what they. I mean, they were just they were just freedom fighters, really, and they mm. um, they they yeah, they didn't have to be. So while a lot of people really didn't stand up to be counted, they. They sacrificed a lot, and it came to a cost from my mum and her sisters. weren't They didn't have parents around as much as everybody else did. Mm-hmm. But um, I think like her legacy still kind of lingers on. We keep we're always very proud of her. And then on my granddad's side, he was a he was a stockbroker, a gold <laughs> trader, <laughs> and he, uh, he just loved markets. From he he, he found a job in uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as a young man, and he just loved fell in love with stock markets. And uh, he was a very interesting guy too. He was very sharp. He was. I was considering like one of the first um, uh, high-speed algorithmic traders because I don't know <laughs> right. exactly when it was. I mean, my dad's told me the story many times, and and he told to me too. Um, um, when he was a when I think it was the fifties or sixties, but he what he did was he bought a telex machine and he hid it mm. in the back of the office. Uh, so it was a big mm. investment, but it allowed him to arbitrage the prices, gold prices between London and New York. So the stockbroking firm where he'd started as as a young as a young guy, hmm. became very powerful because they almost made super profits for many years because they had the secret, which was the telex machine, yeah. which, which allowed them to get the gold prices, prices of gold stocks in London, which in a time lag would then flow through the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So they kind of had an information jump and they exploited it for a very long wow. time. Eventually, I don't know how the secret got out, but 
by that time, I'd really built the firm up into a very strong broking firm. So, so I guess when you um, join a socialist freedom fighter and a stockbroker, <laughs> at two ends of the family tree, you get a finance journalist. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's really my um, my story. My my dad was a stockbroker. Now he's a, I guess you could call him a, a value investor. He he still lives in South Africa. He runs um, global equities portfolios for for clients. Hmm. Um and um yeah my my uncle was a stockbroker my other uncle was a futures trader so markets are kind of in the blood hmm. so <laughs> yeah, it seems to, it seems to be so yeah. so that just naturally led to you studying finance at uni yeah I did finance at university um got a job I spent a year in Boston came to Australia because we had two uncles living here and I wanted to spend time with my cousins and hmm. thought it'd be fun yeah, fun thing not? to do uh, and then I. Uh, Various jobs, and eventually I landed up at a company called Insto, which is which is interesting because it covers credit markets, mm. and uh, it was almost sacrilege because we're a family of equity mm. <laughs> equity brokers and traders and investors that I'd somehow found this job in a, uh, a fine. It's effectively a trade magazine or tr- a trade publication, um, but it focused on credit markets, which which at the time and I guess now still are they're they're kind of they're not as well covered as equities because. Um, the punter isn't buying um, mm. corporate debt, <laughs> no. um, but they were buying equity. So it's not as mainstream, but it was very fascinating and interesting. And my job over the years was to um, update bond investors, corporate bond investors, about deals that were coming and how they were doing and various themes. And it was it was really, really enjoyable. The most interesting part of it was uh, it was around 2005, five, six, and... Um, the credit crisis, the subprime crisis was bubbling, brewing. Yeah. And in Australia, it was really interesting because um, my very first job was I had to organize a conference on collateralized debt obligations, so CDOs. I had to I had to find people that were interested in CDOs. And um, we had this kind of tip-off that the councils um, in New South Wales were being marketed CDOs and it was hmm. hard going. And eventually... Um, I just had I had a list of councils of finance directors at all the councils like Willoughby and um, hmm. Gosford, and eventually I I found like a whole crest of these um, councillors, these small small councils that were investing in CDOs, and it was pretty fascinating. And um, was, yeah, it was what, really what was, scary actually. What was the what was their motivation for doing so? Well, this is fascinating. I thought is. Um, couple of uh, interesting i rang the willara council guy and he said oh we why would we invest in cdos like we can get six percent in the bank and we buy a cdo which is a strange product that i don't understand and i get seven so what's the point like, we've got 10 million dollars in our bank account why would we why would we hmm. go through all that trouble for an extra percent it doesn't make sense but what I found out subsequently is that there were there was an investment bank that was very skilled at um, advocating going above the finance director. So they would one example I heard is they wrote a letter to the um, uh, they wrote a letter to the kind of the council and said your finance director is incompetent. We've offered him a triple A product that pays seven percent, mm-hmm. and he's sitting there telling us to get lost because he reckons he's happy with six percent. Our triple A product is higher rated, better returning. Mm. It's simple mass. It's a no brainer. You need to kind of sort this guy out. Yeah. Uh, he's costing your council X hundred thousand dollars a year of interest. And that's kind of how okay. <laughs> slowly but surely yeah. the council's yeah, loaded the up with all. CDOs. And um I, I wasn't that experienced, but I th- I thought it was um an accident waiting to happen. I didn't think it would happen in the way it did, but it was uh 
it was just a lot of hubris around then. So, so yeah, I'm really grateful for my, for my time at Insta because I kind of got to understand what the these, the corporate debt market and mm. credit just before it blew up. So <laughs> yeah, the good uh, and the bad. Yeah. So, uh, I, but I must be honest, I was really naive I, when these guys were telling me about CDOs. I just thought they were super geniuses, like engineers. You know, and engineers are very precise when they build mm. a bridge. Every millimeter, every every measurement. I just thought that's what they were like with 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 debt products, because they were obsessing over every little basis point. And I just thought they were just very precise bankers, structurers, investors. But that's all hogwash. I mean, mm. <laughs> I, I remember CBA were trying to do a deal at fourteen basis points, not fifteen. And in the end, a month, two months after the crisis, they were doing it at two hundred or two fifty. Mm, so. Yeah, right. um, yeah, it was just it was just fascinating to see the crisis. I'm kind of very grateful uh, that I got that experience, and I guess it's probably like a lot of people my age that were in around finance. The cri- the financial crisis has kind of still had like this profound lingering effect, mm. which is probably why I'm still very cynical. On yeah, a lot even of ten years later, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So this was this publication was it's going to. Sophisticated institutional investors. Yes. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think we had about one thousand or two thousand people that would pay a thousand dollars or pay like something ten thousand dollars a year or something like okay. that. And it was just an email. It was very simple, yep. but it was really great because you knew the whole market. So <laughs> I knew every fixed income investor. I knew every banker doing the deals. I knew every corporate treasurer or bank treasurer that was selling the deals. So I knew all the rating agencies. So mm. it was it was really. Um, I guess that's kind of sometimes why why trade trade press is really good because you know you know your whole audience and you know exactly what they want and you you're providing them with really important information. So mm. uh, yeah, I really thrive. I thought it was it was just great. I was just a central node in this market and I, I learned a hell of a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so what prompted you to go from that to the AFR? Or um, well, in two thousand and eight, I um. Got offered a job at ANZ Bank because I was I knew all the bankers okay. uh, around the time because I was covering debt and 2008 is not a year you would want to spend in a bank because mm-hmm. uh, uh, well Mark Smith was a CEO and he was I think he committed to reducing the workforce pretty dramatically so I was a bit of a lost in first out mm-hmm. um, the trading floor was pretty interesting i i as much as it was a brutal experience it was a really rewarding one because um again i was i was even more closer to the action when mm. the, the, the crisis uh came and, and you could, um what were you doing i was on the syndicate desk which is um it's kind of a function where there's bond salespeople that are trying to convince institutions like amp or colonial to buy the bond and then there's debt capital markets bankers that are trying to convince companies like Woolworths and Origin to sell bonds. So mm. the one is the relationship with the corporate and the other one is the relationship with the investor. And okay. the syndicate sits in the middle and they, their task is to manage the deal. Like So mm. manage expectations to, if Origin thinks they can raise half a billion dollars, the syndicate desk has to liaise with the salesman and say, oh, there's only interest for this and that at this price. So, And then when a deal, when a bond deal comes, they manage it and they, Manage the demand and the order books, and they. So it's it's it was interesting, right? But there, there were no deals in two thousand and eight. So you're so, at the whole place. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't very much to do except for lobby for your job, which summed it better than me clearly. So <laughs> I was at the door at the end of '08, which was a very harrowing experience because at the end of two thousand and eight, I don't think people appreciate how 
how much of an abyss a lot of people were staring into. I don't think mm-hmm. some people thought they might never get jobs again. They, it really felt depression-like. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the things that happened afterwards were not foreseen that China would stimulate, that the Fed would come to the rescue, that markets would pick up. People did not... People, to your point about only knowing what was what's in front of you, what was in front of you, mm-hmm. the information in front of you at the end of eight was pretty bloody scary. And um, I was very lucky in that I got my old job back in Insto, but I, I just grabbed it um, mm-hmm. a couple of months later. And I, it was, oh nine was a great year because um, I, I'd now been on the other side, so I knew mm-hmm. I my BS filter was a lot stronger <laughs> than it was before I went into banking yeah. and. And then, uh, yeah, at the end of the year, I got approached by the AFR. Uh, I think they felt at the time that they didn't cover debt markets in as much detail as they wanted, and they just want, they they felt that having someone with a bit of knowledge mm. on credit and debt would would kind of add to their coverage. And so their reason was the op- their, the reason for hiring was the opposite reason why I went. I just thought this is great. This is my opportunity to move beyond credit and corporate debt and kind of cover markets more generally. So. Uh, which over the years I've ended up doing. So over now I've been there nine years, uh, and I've gradually tried um, just out of interest really mm. gravitate beyond corporate debt, which is still really really interesting at times, especially when when things get um, hairy. Corporate mm. debt—it's helped pays to have knowledge on corporate debt um, and credit markets. Uh, so I've, yeah, I've just expanded out. I'm I'm really interested in hedge funds. The macro economy, banks, markets, things like ETFs. So, yeah, I just fortunately the people, um, guys at the paper, let me don't constrain me too much. So mm. I just look for what's ever interesting and yeah, centers around around markets and investing. Okay, so you, so like you said you've just gravitated to, well, from what I can tell, at least um, a lot of the, the stuff recently has been hedge funds, yeah, equ- equity market facing, yeah. Um, so you've gravitated towards those big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pieces, yeah. Um, okay, so over the years, you and your colleagues at AFR have done an exquisite job of covering some of these big, <laughs> I suppose, you know, corporate, yeah. maybe we won't call them collapses, but yeah. um, there's been some things that have happened yep. that would, um, you know, there, there's some, I dare say the word dodgy operating tactics <laughs> at some of these big these big corporates. There's poor governance, um, you name it. Yeah. And um, we'll dive into one specific example okay. in a minute. but. I mean, before we get to that, looking back now over the last, say, five or ten years, yep. what have been some of the highlights for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, now, now that you've asked me, I'm, I'm giving some thought and like some of the highlights are the lowlights as well. <laughs> um, so I'm just – like one story that, that kind of really kind of changed me a lot was uh, Slater and Gordon, which was a mm. law firm that collapsed. And now when I look back and read the articles I wrote, I was like, yeah, yeah, I nailed that. Yeah, yeah, I got that. <laughs> but now I, I, I think I made a point to myself at the time to appreciate how difficult and stressful and tricky covering these things are. Like you you don't know who's right and who's wrong. Mm. or what. what um, and at the time I was just like, you've got to just follow the process. Like So when you – when we file our stories at – six seven o'clock at night and then we go to sleep and then <laughs> you kind of it goes into this quiet zone and then the stories get out at 6 a.m or well they go up at midnight but you start getting feedback and things around six seven o'clock in the morning so it's kind of this quiet period and you don't know if you've really screwed something up <laughs> until the next morning so often if you've gone out on a limb to some degree you'd be pretty anxious until that oh, sure. uh, 
And then the worst thing is getting a call, <laughs> just calling your mobile from someone <laughs> representing the other side. Yep. But I think like a, a, as long as you follow a process and as long as you know that whatever you've written is correct and to the best of your your abilities or your um, endeavors, you've, you've checked everything and you've put anything that you're going to say to the other side and you've, you've just made sure that whatever you could have done to make sure the information is correct, you have done. Then you can't, you shouldn't really lose sleep. So you mm. should just kind of say, well, if it's wrong, it was because I wasn't. They they didn't take the opportunity to to clear it up or mm. to the again exactly to the story that you, that you told at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> the information you have available at the time. So so that was a that was just a very interesting, tricky story. That um, yeah, that just both a highlight and a lowlight. I just remember. I made sure that I would remember how how hard these stories are. It's, it's a it's the same for a lot of journalists. The, mm-hmm. the hard stories are hard. Like the good stories are really really hard because you've got to go the extra mile. You've you've I wouldn't say take take risk isn't the right right phrase because you, you shouldn't never take risk with mm-hmm. information. But you know you've got to um, throw yourself at things and follow hunches and um, so. So Slater and Gordon would, would probably, that was 2015, I think. So, mm. um, and then this year was great. This was, year was really fascinating. Um, the big, big un story was, uh, it was again the same. It was mm. that one I knew something was up from. Like, there was no doubt in my mind that there was something that wasn't being presented to <laughs> the market. And it was just a case of being dogged and determined. So there was no anxiety as to whether I was right or wrong or whether I was wrong. It was anxiety as to whether I would be able to find out what exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. I knew it was there. I just had to find it out. And I was anxious that I wouldn't be able to. Yep. This is one of those uh, where I mentioned in the beginning, this is one of those fact from fairy tales. That, yep. um, why don't we start with the fairy tale component right. of, of Big and um, yep. Big Unlimited. Why don't you yep. tell us, Let's let's put some context behind it. What what does this? What did this company do? Um, how it went about things, and then tell us why someone would have been attracted to this business in okay. the first place. Well, maybe I'll tell it in a way that how it came to my attention. Yeah. And, um, so I think it was late last. It was probably around this time, twenty seventeen. So November twenty seventeen. Get Swift was in the news because. Um, mm-hmm. Like the share price is going up and Fidelity were doing the capital raise. Yeah, so the best performer of 2017. Yeah. 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 So I am, um, when GetSwift started going up and we got started, I think Steve Johnson on Forager was on Twitter saying mm. something's, something's not, something's amiss here and um, asking all sorts of questions about GetSwift, which was a really hot tech stock. Um, and then they landed up announcing that they had some deal with Amazon, uh, which. Again, it was just, it was very odd. Yeah. Odd's probably the word I'll use. <laughs> and then they piled in later with a capital raising on the back of the share price appreciation. And it all just, it all just seemed like we needed to be covering it. It's probably the euphemism mm-hmm. I'll use. So I, I, I messaged a few people that follow that space closely and just look for companies that need, that need a bit of work done on them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, that person mentioned Big and I thought Big were a mining company. So, um, mm. I was like, this is really, and he said, well, you guys are promoting it. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> we're promoting it. And he pointed me towards the SMH had done a, um, an article, as, as a lot of organizations have mm. done around November, because they big had gone on a media blitz to say, oh, we've got this young entrepreneur. Uh, we, the share price has gone up crazy. He's really wealthy. Him and his dad have started this amazing tech company, and they've 
become very rich. So it's kind of a real like um, rags to riches type mm. story. And but it just seemed a bit strange. Um, I mean, what Big did was they made biz- uh, videos for small businesses, and what this guy that 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 I contacted asking him for what he was looking at, the points that he made were um, the cash flows were incredible. Like, how are the cash flows going so so incredibly quickly? It just didn't. It just seemed off the charts. But you can't fake cash flows. So mm. he's like, "This is really really interesting. There's something there." You can't be growing this quickly from making videos for small businesses. I mean, small businesses tend to be pretty cash-strapped. Mm. And, um, and plus, no one's heard of them and their platforms on YouTube. And then he said that the chief executive changed his name and changed it back. Oh, uh, like that in of itself is not... It's unusual. It happens. It's not that it can't happen. But it's just one of those few little things, few little flags, red flags, I guess, Uh the other was that they were issuing shares like crazy at very deep discounts. So they weren't actually making like – they weren't – to pay their expenses, they were issuing shares. They were at like 80 or 90% discounts to uh, where the share price was traded. Again, which is it's just all very curious, especially when they're generating so much cash. Mm, why would they need to do that, right? <laughs> so – um, so I tried to get to the bottom of it by the end of the year and I failed to get even close to the year, <laughs> bottom of it. So I wrote what, what, what I thought was a pretty balanced article. I sent some, some questions to the CFO. One of the questions was why did they change auditors? They, they had mm. um, PKF, which is a pretty reputable firm, and they changed to a, um, a smaller firm on the other end of the country in WA, um, so, which I thought was also a red flag. And, um, so I wrote what I thought was a pretty balanced article. I just said, this is the most unbelievable stock of 2017. And it's up to you if you want to take unbelievable to be positive or to be negative. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then I didn't think much of it, um, until early next, the, the following year, I started to get people reaching out to me that had worked there and they were, something was wrong, but they didn't know what. I think they were just, I mean, I remember one person just was in a bit of a limbo at the end of the year, feeling like a bit lost mm-hmm. and just felt the need to contact me. Um, and I had um, got a tip off earlier that it might have had something to do. I had got a tip off that their cash flows, their positive cash flows might have had something to do with Finstro, which is a an accounting software firm, I guess, that they'd had a partnership with. And they were a subsidiary of a a, a um, small business lender called FC Capital. Mm-hmm. So that was a very important clue. Um, so I started to look into that a little bit more, but didn't go anywhere. Then this person sent me um, a sales manual and you could see how important Finstro was in the selling of it all um, and got a few other clues, but it just didn't go anywhere until um, I think it was around February. Um, this proxy advisory firm and governance uh, guys uh, called Ownership Matters here in Melbourne, mm-hmm. they did a report on it and one of their clients sent it to me and I was like, wow, this is these guys have also picked something up around um, and formalised it in a proper note that they've mm. sent to clients, also raising issues around their governance. So I thought, well, it's a good opportunity for me to go to the company on that and to go to the company on um, on this FC Capital Finstro. Yeah. And I just asked a simple question what the relationship was and then I guess it all just unravelled from there. Mm. <laughs> and we, we, we it was a bit of... Um, waiting for them to respond and then in that interim period while I was waiting for them to respond we'd found out that the finance company was issued 3 million shares at an 80% discount so that was kind of closed the loop because you had a financing company um, 
lending them money to help their cash flows, but then receiving the benefit in the form of the shares going up because of the cash that they lent. So um, it was very clever, and that was kind of the first crack. But we got a lot, we we wrote the story and then we got a lot of grief because Big had a lot of and and this was I, I kind of expected this because I experienced it with Slater and Gordon and and a couple of others. But I think in this in this day and age, with social media kind of becoming more and more of a, a legitimate platform for people or prolific platform mm. for people to air their views, um, Big had a lot of shareholders that had done very well out of it and were believing in it and. I, I still don't know how they all got onto it, as in if it was um, promotion sites or, but they had a legion of shareholders that were sitting on massive gains, and the articles I was writing was not helping them. And I, I don't have an issue with them. I, I would probably react the same way, but they were just I just got a tsunami of hate and, <laughs> and questioning our, our writing and our facts and our company put out responses that I didn't think were, were adequate. Uh, I think in hindsight, people would probably agree if they read mm. them now. At the time, they thought that they'd beaten back all the suggestions we were making. So it got really tough, actually. It was like um, quite a lot of uh, abuse. Um, but that didn't actually I – th- I think that was good, actually, because it, it made me – forced me to do more work <laughs> and mm. turn over more rocks. Um, and previously, if I was less experienced, I would have figured, you know what, I've said my thing. It's up to regulators and mm. shareholders to work it out. I've kind of led them. The information that I've managed to gather has given them enough clues to work it out for themselves. But the lesson in big was that that wasn't enough. The, the company could take the narrative back and mm. um, discredit what we were writing. So fortunately, I started a few more leaks started to emerge and evidence and things came my way. Um that I could piece together two um, very important, or I would call them smoking guns. One was I had, uh, I was aware of an invoice sent to a, com- a customer that hadn't actually agreed to the service. So after harassing this poor person all weekend to ring me back, just a small business owner, they had no idea why a journalist was calling them and texting them all weekend, eventually rang, rang me back and I could confirm that there was an invoice, but the person had never agreed to the sale. Hmm. So I thought that was very important. And then someone who's very good at accounts pointed pointed out to me that um, I was bothering me all weekend. I was out for dinner and I showed them Big's accounts. The last thing they want to do on a Saturday night <laughs> dinner is look at a financial statements. But they pointed out that um, the interest income is very low. Um, mm. I think you could earn that interest even at the RBA cash rate. They had $30 million of cash, but you could earn that in a matter of days, mm. um, the interest that they showed. So they had $30 million of cash, but only a few thousand dollars of it. So that kind of led to the hunch that the cash wasn't really, they were showing the balance sheet wasn't really there. So um, did a what's called a PPSR search, which is you search the company to see if anyone has claim over their assets. And I'd actually already done this, but I did it with the head company, Big on, not big review. Yep. Um, then on the Sunday, I was in the office because I was rostered in that day and I was fiddling around and bang, I found that FC Capital had a um, claim over all their assets, including the cash. Hmm. So long story, like, oh, it's already a long story, <laughs> but at the end of all of that, you could, you, we could prove pretty definitively and then they were subsequently forced to provide even more information to the ASX to kind of 
prove what we were hinting at or or even going further, suggesting that um, the finance company was just lending them the money against a sale that didn't occur. So those cash receipts were not actually tied to sales. They were just tied to leads, really. Mm. So for every lead, they were effectively showing $12,000 of revenues or cash revenues. And I think it became pretty obvious that... Um, yeah, all was not how it mm. was presented at the company. So, yeah, that was – and then it went into trading halt for many weeks and months. And, um, again, we got a lot of abuse. There were a lot of delusional shareholders that didn't think what we were writing was correct and that all, all would be returned to normal. And, mm. I mean, that was a pretty – I tried to – I tried – I tried to understand, I didn't understand that a lot of people had lost a lot of money on this. So it was not a, it's not something to be, I mean, we're proud of our work and our investigations, but we're very mindful that a lot of people were in pretty bad positions after that. So, I mean, people that contacted me, I just tried to make that clear that um, still it's not our job to, it's just our job to find out what the truth mm. is. And like I said, we're proud of that, but I mean, we're not... We're not responsible. We're just we're just the messenger, I guess. Yeah, that's right. You're just the yeah. medium for it. Yeah. And this this isn't just a little bit of money either, right? This was the company that yeah. was about to enter the ASX 300 or you know, become owned by superannuation funds and index funds and yeah. these asset managers that would have billions of dollars um, mm. to invest, not necessarily all in Biggin. But um, you mentioned the, the idea that the the company this big review which was owned by the ASX listed Biggin could or supposedly earned about twelve thousand dollars in cash yeah, from yeah. one video that a yeah. small business owner might pay them for yeah um, and there's a quote here that from one of your excellent articles covering it was um, where the the small business owner might say does this cost and then the response is ha 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 only if you want it to <laughs> yeah. with our sponsor on board the filming on the day is all covered. Yep. So that's the sales script that we got uh, handled. So this is when people were calling up um, Charlie's Chickens or whatever, <laughs> pitching them a video. This is what they were telling them. So obviously the business would say, sure, come on in. Uh, if I don't have to pay for this, if you want to make a video about my business, go for come go for your life. So, mm. but they would be they were able effectively to book that as a sale um, uh, and. The finance company would advance the twelve thousand dollars. It all gets siphoned off into trust accounts, so that couldn't all be blown up or mm. spent. But yeah, they were basically the businesses were agreeing because um, it was free. Mm. So um, and that, that, to my understanding, that's what Big were focused on doing was just they had these salespeople trying to just give away free just, videos. Just get an invoice with an ABN number. Or uh, yeah, something. yeah. So um, that, yeah, that's. That was our thesis, which I think's proved to be the case now. Mm. So, um, the the association with um, Finstro is an interesting one because, and this runs deep through our financial system because there was directors on this company's board and um, who were quite, I suppose you could say, prolific. They were they're quite ingrained in the Australian financial system. Um, so there there were many bad actors and people that perhaps. Yeah, turn their head to some of the, the facts that yeah. were going on. Well, that's that. I mean, that's a tricky question because uh, there are very senior people that were associated with that, but we don't know what they knew and what what they didn't know. Um, I mean, some of the points I tried to make in the coverage was that sometimes you just hope people in these positions with, of authority um, and uh, do kind of stand up and be counted for, and mm. 
say something or act or put an end to something rather than just try and say that they had nothing to do with it or no knowledge of it because they are, I mean, in this case, the person was financially, as best as I can understand, if you follow the the ownerships, this person would have been benefiting from that. So, mm. and again, I wouldn't suggest in any way there was any wrongdoing, but sometimes I guess you hope that people stand yeah. up and be counted for. I mean, uh, Australian financial system relies on governance, on people and boards, directors to um, to take stand to to govern. I guess, yeah, <laughs> and 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 there's governing in a formal sense, and there's governing in an informal sense. There's vote like performing your duties, you know, official duties. Of, but I think there's also sometimes maybe my hope or belief is that um, people use their positions of authority and. Um, to kind of make sure these things don't happen or mm. get as far as they do or when they do, try to prevent the next one. So mm. I will get off my high horse <laughs> 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 now. Okay. <laughs> so I get into trouble. <laughs> so why don't we think a bit about what happened um, after the fact. So this company's gone into uh, suspension. Um, bring it up to today. It's as the subsidiary now filed for voluntary administration. It filed for voluntary, the subsidiary and the main company filed for voluntary administration. The subsidiary was restructured through a deed of company arrangement. So effectively the creditors took control of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But my understanding as of right now, what's happening at the moment is that that's collapsing and it's going to now these both entities are potentially going to be unwound. Mm. So, um, but it's delisted, it doesn't trade, it stopped trading a few months ago. It seems like everyone's lost out of this deal, right? Like the, the, the shareholders have obviously lost money, um, but there's also the people that worked, I suppose, that maybe perhaps didn't understand further down the chain, the call centres and, and things, didn't understand perhaps what they were getting themselves into. And um, Now we see that it's, mm. they're down to two days a week of work, might not be paid super and all those types of things. So this is all, all around this is just a, a blemish, I suppose. Well, I think that's beyond beyond big. That's an important point of consideration uh, for companies that are, um, yeah, for companies that are um, being exposed or targeted, uh, rightly or wrongly, is that there are staff that work there and mm. <laughs> livelihoods and careers. So, I mean, I try to be mindful of that as much as I can, um, without losing focus on what my my role is. But yeah, mm. there are you. You've, can't ignore <laughs> that there are, there's huge personal costs in success and failure. So, mm. uh, and this uh, we should say that this isn't a one-off thing, right? That, that unfortunately we do see it around the place, and it, they, it rears its ugly head every now and again. Mm. Um, some of the more recent uh, examples might be, say, Blue Sky, or not. Well, it's about the same time. Um, you, you mentioned Slater and Gordon, mm. um, and even. More recently, we haven't. This is a very present thing, but um, corporate travel is now a, a focus of yep. some short sellers as well. Yeah. Um, so, in your, I'm interested to know, in your opinion, do you think that an ordinary investor, a mum and dad, can detect these types of poor governance, these instances of poor governance? No. <laughs> yeah. And nor can a lot of institutional investors, in my uh, ex- experience, um, they're not easy to detect. Um, mm. so yeah, it's difficult. Um, I mean, uh, from my credit 
reporting on credit days, a lot of credit investors would be sideswiped by things out of the blue and they would acknowledge that they just cannot, you just cannot see these things coming. Mm. Um, some people are very good <laughs> at finding them mm. out, but that's a very different skill set. Mm. Um, so no, I think for mum and dads, it's very hard. I mean, that they, if there's any kind of overriding lesson and I, but based on the way I invest, which is not very well, <laughs> I would not be one to give investing advice. But I guess if you understand the business and the company and you're comfortable and this was a key lesson in big and I'm I'm amazed that not many people know like act in this way. But diversification, I mean, that is <laughs> people would and there were very sad stories about how much people had lost in big mm. and they put all their money into it or and and other stocks, but you should never put a meaningful portion of your money into any stock, speculative or not. I mean, even some safe stocks like AMP mm. um, can. What are they down fifty percent? Well, not safe, but what perceived, you might yeah, perceive to be blue chips. Yeah. So I, I shouldn't give investing advice. I don't think that's investing advice. No, I think that's not. just common sense. But um, and that was the reaction I got. I wrote a story about big and all the investors that were in a, in a very dark place once it emerged that big was probably going to zero and I wrote an article and a few investors helped me with that and reached out to other investors and it was all not not quoted. I didn't name any of the investors but um, the reaction I got from a lot of people was, well, the first reaction was this is really sad and, mm. uh, which, and I wanted to kind of raise awareness as to the cost of the cost of these things but a lot of people shot back, which I don't disagree with, that what were they thinking? Why did they have so much money in such a speculative stock? No matter how good the idea is, mm. like, you just can't do that. You just should not do that. It's it's madness. It's risky. It's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> this time it's different, right? That's what yeah. everyone thinks. Yeah. yeah. And by all means, I would, again, I hope I'm not sounding like I'm giving investing advice. By all means, feel free. Like, it wouldn't hurt to make a, a bet that's got a high payoff. That's a good way to invest. Mm. But... Just don't bet everything on, on mm. those kinds yeah. of things. I think, I think that's um, a good bit of information there. Um, so you, well, we talked about uh, Slater and Gordon. That made a big acquisition in the in the UK that turned out to be a bit foul. Um, one thing that you've penned recently was this discussion around roll-ups. Yep. And I think I've got the quote <laughs> here. It's um, roll-up, roll-up for the next blow-up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was my colleague Jemima that came up with that headline. <laughs> right, right. Can you can, can you explain the mechanics behind a roll up, maybe even just what it is, and then yeah, they're very interesting. Actually, uh, they are very interesting beasts um, that are pretty prevalent in uh, in Australia and and around the world. Um, I guess that in, in America they call them platform companies, and hmm. they're very interesting because I think to my mind they are taking advantage of the way stock markets price a company mm. versus the way a private company, a private market, or I guess a private business investor would price a company. Uh, and they use that to arbitrage. So if a company is on 10 times earnings and it buys a company on five times mm. earnings, it takes the earnings and rolls it up into, and then those five times earnings get re-rated at 10 times earnings. And it's so it looks like things, it's making more. All more things profit. being equal, yep. the value of the company goes up purely from buying a business with a lower multiple. Hmm. But if that if that really did create value, then any company, even if they were, um, uh, I don't know, a nuts and bolts but maker, would buy a clothing manufacturer hmm. if they were on a, a lower multiple. So, like the logic, the to, um, at a, at its extreme, the logic doesn't work. But the stock market seems to reward 
those mm. kinds of deals and maybe more so now. This is just a theory, but maybe when there's more kind of quant, quant um, money and they're looking at earnings growth and, and analyst earnings forecasts and, and acquisition increases the earnings, it might marginally drive more money into that stock. Mm. Uh, although that it has roll-ups have been um, sucking in investors for years. And <laughs> and there are actually some roll-ups are not, not all roll-ups are bad as well. If you can, if your strategy is to buy businesses that you think you can add value operationally or through scale or there's one in Canada called Constellation Software, which yep. has been a huge success. And Mark Leonard. Yeah, and yeah. if you take him at face value, which it's hard not to after he's been so successful for so long, is that he just believes that he can identify good software companies and go in and, and just add, organizationally add value um, mm. to that business and then to his business. So, yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, yeah. Constellation can do so. Mm. And I think one of the important points about that is Constellation very rarely issues new shares. Yes. Good so point. Yeah. it uses its free cash flow, so to speak, yes. to fund these acquisitions and yep. pay off over time rather than, say, some of the mechanics and the, the magic, if you like, behind issuing shares yes. and then arbitraging that. Oh, yeah, I agree. And when I wrote that article, I ran quite a few people that I respect <laughs> that are very insightful. And I said, well, how do you, like, what is a rule of thumb for knowing a good roll-up and a bad roll-up? And they said, well, not, it's not an absolute rule of thumb, but a good guide is if the company doesn't issue new stock. Mm. But I'm sure there's probably yeah, multiple there's examples. An exception to that rule. Yeah, without yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, that, that's, uh, so this is a good segue into uh, one of the more recent topics uh, and one of the companies that you've covered recently, which is corporate travel management. Yes. This yeah. is a, a travel business that, as it says on the tin, um, provides travel solutions to um, corporate clients. Uh, can you explain the, the genesis of the story and yeah. where, we're, where we're at now? It's a very interesting one. And um, to me, it shows the sophistication of short sellers and companies. Mm-hmm. So the increased sophistication of short sellers and companies that are subject of a short seller rate. I think they've both sides have kind of... Mm-hmm. Scaled up and become more um, more sophisticated. Uh, yes, yeah, so this one came, I think, um, end of October. Um, VGR, which is a hedge fund that's got pretty good reputation for finding shorts, mm. came out with a yeah detailed report, I think 176 pages, um, looking at the accounts, looking at looking at red flags that they found in the accounts. Um, claims that they had patented technologies. They did a whole global search and found there were no patents at all um, linked to corporate travel. Then they, don't know how exactly they did this, but they ran around the world and they managed to get photos of all their offices and showed that either some of the locations were not there or they were not manned. They were phantom offices. Phantom and ghost offices. Um, and it, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, at its surface, pretty devastating report. Mm. Um, but the company went to halt for two days. So VGR put out the report on the Sunday, so they didn't put it out during market hours. Mm. Um, so that allowed the company. I don't know. I don't know if this was their intention, but it allowed the company to not trade on to go into trading halt, and they had two days to respond. Mm. Then they responded, and they, they felt that they refuted the claims. The stock went down. I think twenty percent, twenty five percent. Then they VGR put out another report. I 
if I could summarize, it was basically saying that they didn't answer the questions and some of their responses raised more questions. Mm. Corporate travel then hit back again uh, and their final, their the, the not their, I don't know if it's their final response, <laughs> but their, their final response to date was contained some qualifying statements from Ernst & Young to, suggesting that Ernst & Young had looked at the accounts, uh, aspects of the accounts and given it a, a tick. So that was... It's fair to say, welcomed by a lot of by a lot of investors, and the stocks run up a little bit. I think net net, it's down maybe fifteen percent or something mm. like that at the moment. But it's very interesting. So both sides are, um, and it, it's interesting to contrast it to Blue Sky, which was the subject of also of a a short report mm. by a very different outfit, so uh, Glaucus, which is a US based research firm. To the best of my knowledge, they're not like a registered fund manager with investors. They specialize in writing reports and Mm. and taking positions on the back of that. So Glaucus wrote a report on Blue Sky, and that came during market hours, so they had to halt the stock. Uh, And I think it's a consensus view that Blue Sky did not respond well at all. They just denied everything. They denied everything. They got very emotive. they called all their ASX statements response to foreign short. Yeah, they <laughs> foreign shorter opinion piece. I think is, is what <laughs> okay. they used, and I just don't think that sat well with a lot of the a lot of investors that were sitting on the fence or mm. cynical. I just don't fit that the way. I think the key moment for Blue Sky was when they had an earnings call and everyone yeah. kind of rubbed their hands together and go great. CEO or managing director is going to front investors, going to take questions. So no matter how curly they are, he he's he's obviously prepared because he's prepared for anything. He's prepared to to go on a call and take questions because mm. they'd scheduled the, the call the following day, and everyone thought that was a very positive move. And then the call ended, and he just said thank you for dialing in. So all he did was read a prepared statement, mm. which they could have posted. On the A6, yeah. there was no need for a call to do that, and I think like when <laughs> when, the, when the phone hanged up, I, I think that was you could almost hear a gasp across the whole country. <laughs> um, so there were a few things, and, and that and and I guess all of that is aside from who's right or wrong or whatever. It's just how they handle the situation. So so I I think it's too early to to t- say anything on corporate travel and mm. and, and, and and it's not really my role to. Like no. Our role is to see how this plays out and cover it and gather as much information as we can. So where corporate travel goes, who knows at the moment. But um, I think just if you're just focusing on how Blue Sky and corporate travel responded to these reports, it's clear that the targets have become mm. more sophisticated in their defence. Um, yeah, there, there's there's been some early learnings from some of these these targets. Um, one of the things that struck me about this VGI report on corporate travel was that I suppose from my position as an advisor, I, I try to look for fairness in the system and, and how the, the market can keep its yeah. integrity. Yeah. And one of those things is that everyone's equally informed, right? But given that many investors won't have access to these short reports simply because the companies yeah. are not authorised to distribute them, et cetera, yeah. I wonder if there is a better mechanism for these ideas to come to market. Yes, it's interesting, and I. Th- what I would say is, I think all three sides in this debate—debate's <laughs> uh, probably a euphemism <laughs> to describe this—would would, would want that. So I don't think there's anybody out there that doesn't want 
or the information to be as widespread as possible. At least what they that's what they they say. So I think VGR would probably want their report to be read by as many people as possible, all 176 pages and all eight pages in mm. response. Corporate travel may want the same in terms of they would be happy for that. I, d- I don't know that, but that they mm. there I think. I think there was general agreement when I wrote a piece about this and that yes, that it is a, it is not good to have information. It's um, material, ac- yeah, material access by some and not by others. I think the regulator would, would also like that. The kind of the, the spanner in the works is that corporates are not allowed to publish research reports. Right. So if Morgan Stanley puts a buy on X Y Z and writes a whole long, I mean, they're not allowed to put that on the ASX. Hmm. Um, which, which I think is logic to that hmm. because um, that could be a, they could be very selective in the research they put up. So ASX just says no, or you can't put up broker research. So this would probably constitute some kind of of research, hmm. or, um, and a lot of small companies commission research in the hope that it will be, or in the <laughs> in the strong likelihood hmm. that it will turn out to be positive. So I guess if, if they can put that on the ASX. Um, it, it could be a free for all. Yeah, and, and someone explained to me that the ASX, the view of the ASX is that an analyst or a broker wouldn't and shouldn't have any better ability to predict earnings than the company itself. So there isn't really much real value in, mm. um, <laughs> at least in theory, as to what a broker does because they they're using the same information provided by the company, and if the company could accurately forecast anything or make predictions, it, it should come from the company. Mm. I think that's kind of a busted our summary of, of how it was explained to me. So Yeah, well it's not perfect, right? That's the problem. But there's no doubt that yeah. broker broker earnings revisions and, and notes um, are probably moving the market now more than they ever have, ironically. Mm. So mm. so it absolutely is market moving information. Particularly with um, some of these big uh, stories recently, particularly some that you and the, your team have, have broken, um, it certainly seems that the, the short reports are, at least from these reputable houses, really moving the, the dial. I mean, we talked about corporate travel. That if it drops fifteen or twenty percent, that's a pretty effective yep. trade for some short sellers. Yep. So it's just one of those things, I suppose, that um, we have to deal with if we're retail investors or small investors. Mm. Uh, not perfect, but um, yep. yeah. And I know you brought this up when you spoke to Ben McGarry. Um, I mean, I think he argued, um, as would I, that the more information, mm. the better. And I think he cited the example of Credit Corp. So the market will chew up and spit out mm. research that's that's rubbish, <laughs> you'd like to think. So any information, good or bad, is helpful. But I guess, I guess in this case, it's this difficult situation where, or this unusual situation where the information is having a big impact, but it's not being disseminated equally mm. so yes indeed um okay well as we come to the end of our chat yep um i wanted to pick your brain on where you see finance journalism going over the next decade hopefully uh, onwards and upwards <laughs> uh i think it's i think it's in a i can't speak for the paper i think it's in a healthier place than it has been for a while yep. um just newspapers generally i think have gone through the hard Hard times. Uh, I think papers in general and mainstream media is. It's not the only show in town, but it's 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 got a more targeted, important purpose now. Mm. I think so. There's plenty of voices which I welcome. I think it's really good. More, vo- but I think mainstream media has got 
one thing uh, one thing a finance a newsroom and a finance newsroom has got is lots of resources. So we've got legal counsels that can help us make sure we, yep. whatever we write isn't going to get us in trouble. <laughs> and and they're like they're the unsung heroes of the newsroom and of I think of democracy because they allow mm. they are your check to get really important information out there. Um, yeah, we've got access to information. We got access to executives, to fund managers. So we really sit in an unbiased, important node. So we like, I feel like finance journalists at mainstream media organisations have got a very, very important role. Mm. And corporate travel is probably a good example. Um, I think it's very hard for someone outside of a mainstream organisation to cover that, to have the access to cover that well. Look, whether we cover it well or we mess it up, or we don't get everything mm. right, or we always we always get our facts right, but. It's harder for somebody just to sit at home on their computer and mm. because they don't have they don't have the ability to it's not a skill thing, it's just a situation. Yeah, you've got the network resources yep. to be able to um to get to the bottom of things and to provide valuable information. So I think newsrooms it's funny, as there's more information mm. <laughs> um well corporate travel is a great example. So there's never been more information. You keep hearing out there's almost an overload of information. Mm. Yet you still see these highly divisive situations where there's people don't know the greater truth. With despite all the information out there, corporate travel, I think you've got a pretty split camp, don't you? You've mm. got two people arguing vociferously uh, their cases, and all the information, as much information is out there, and it's still undecided. So, so even though there's more information, I think we it's still there's still a role, and so I think. I think it will become more and more important um, finance journalism. I think um, situations like this are probably where we add more, uh, a lot of value, and it looks like they're becoming more frequent. So um, I think it's bright. <laughs> well, it's going to be it's going to be labour intensive. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the things that I suppose, not, uh, you know, in a way, it concerns me, in that, and from an investment point of view, purely. Um, I encourage people to hear the opposite side of the, the debate, right? Yeah. So to get that. I think this stock's going up. Who thinks it's going down? Yep. That's probably more valuable than the person that agrees with you. Right? Absolutely. And I think with social media and the role that it plays now, our, our, our circles of where we get our information are growing tighter and tighter. We just find the yep. people that agree with us typically yep. and we follow them or we like what they do. So we just follow, you know, that's where we get our source of information. That's our source of information. And that's why, that's probably a trend that does concern me a bit. Yeah. Whereas we still need these big stalwarts of information, these guys like yourself mm. and your team that, that go out and are willing to put in the work to get the to get the facts straight. I think so. I mean, there's people that will argue with us on social media. The same people uh, arguing the opposite. They uh, they mainstream. They give all sorts of criticisms for mainstream media. Hmm. There might be some tinges of truth in some of them, but generally, I think we're pretty important institutions, and I think overall we add a lot of value to society, to financial markets, to Corporate Australia, I'd like, I'd like to think. No, I really strongly believe that we do. So, um, mm. I mean, one of the things is always, oh, you only write negative. <laughs> I, was, I was just checking my Twitter today and there was somebody saying, oh, AFR, all AFR or finance, negative news sells. But I think that's just the wrong way of looking at it. I mean, firstly, that's nonsense. What correlation is there between negative news and, and <laughs> se- selling uh, newspapers? But... I mean, there's like an adage in the newsroom, and again, I might get the exact word, wording of it wrong, but like the news is the stuff that people don't want to be out there. So um, so positive stories, that they find their way, 
they find their way. Mm. Like it's the, it's the negative. It tends to be the negative news or the that people don't want out there. So if we're obviously going if we're if we're writing important stuff, it doesn't have to be negative. But in my experience, it's very seldom that someone has a great news story. <laughs> That they're hiding from you, or they've been socked away for <laughs> you to discover. The they do happen. Like there are very modest people that have done something amazing, and they don't want you to know about it, or they just want to stay under the radar, or, or things like that. And and you uncover them, uh, and they're great when you do that. But oh, that still fits the kind of the mold of something that no, a person or something that nobody wants you to write. So mm-hmm. so that's why people would think that we only write negative news but that's not true and we, we write plenty of positive stuff mm. i mean we have the rich list which is a celebration of achievement so uh, again i don't want to be a spokesman for for the paper more a spokesman against some of the criticisms that mm. come our way I, I think i think the stuff that people don't want you to know is where we add a lot of value so mm. um but but, it's, it's not what, only what we write mm, that's where it become you i suppose add to that efficiency yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned Twitter. Where else could people, I suppose, hear more about you and the team? What's the best place? Just go to the website? Subscribe to the AFI. <laughs> yeah, subscribe to the AFI. Great. Yeah, I think it's well, and, and a lot of us are on social media, so we'll put our stories up. And um, mm. um, But, yeah, the AFR is, uh, yep. yeah, subscribe. Yeah, great. <laughs> it's a no-brainer, I think, if you're in um, if you're in Australian finance, you're an investor, it's a no-brainer. Um, okay, last question. If you could go back and tell a younger you something about money, finance, investing, what would it be? It's funny because I had a different answer, but then when you were telling the story about um, the poor guy at Apple selling his shares, <laughs> I thought of uh, something that I would absolutely tell myself now, which is don't sell. Because when I was a young boy of 13, my dad put some money in a company called Mnet, mm-hmm. which was a the equivalent of Foxtel in South Africa. Okay. And he, they were a rand a, one rand a share. And he put, I think, 30,000 rand. So today's money would be $3,000, but it was probably less in currency terms and inflation adjusted mm-hmm. terms. And Mnet landed up getting acquired by a very old media company called National Press, uh, which is called Naspers, which in 2001 oh, bought a one, 33% stake in a crappy little Chinese technology company called Tencent for $30 million. And it's a 60,000 bagger. <laughs> so if I hadn't sold those shares, they'd probably be worth $6 million and I probably would not be sitting here today. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so that's that my advice. <laughs> is if, um, is, yeah, buy and hold. Like, I mean, look at even, I don't know, take any Australian stock and go back to the early 90s and, and you would have made hmm. extraordinary gains. So I guess whatever – as young as you are, it's it's you don't need a lot of money, I guess. To um, again, I'm giving financial advice. <laughs> <advantage, but>, um, <laughs> it's just common sense. Every little dollar counts. Um, it does. And these are kind of the lessons that Buffett um, would espouse about compounding. And mm. um, so, yeah, start early. Maybe that's great. <laughs> maybe that's how I'd summarize it. Start early and don't sell. <laughs> yep. Great advice, Johnny. Thank you so much for this. No worries. Your time and this interview. Really Appreciate enjoyed it. it. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Time. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. 
If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.